Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Creative Curmudgeon. Today, I am speaking with Joel Kayak, who performs experimental dystopian music under the name Dream Mega. That's not just two separated words. It's dream, and then underscore, and then mega. Underscore connecting the two. Make sure you Google it that way. He's also been part of the band's Landed, Six Finger Satellite, and Megafuckers. And I first became aware of your work last year, actually, because I saw your name on the Melt Banana tour poster. I, I think you opened for them for uh, a few shows. You didn't in Phoenix. Um, that's like the only big indoor thing concert that I've that I've been to uh, since, you know, the thing started a few years ago. Um but uh, I did become familiar with your your work from that, even though you weren't playing that show and uh, have really liked it. And it's cool to be talking with you. So, yeah, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Tell me about the name, first of all. Where did the name come from? Oh, um, I used to live in um, Crown Heights in Brooklyn. This would have been around 2004-ish, mm-hmm. four, four or five. And I was living with this friend of mine, uh, this painter, Daniel Rich, um, who's a tremendous painter. If you are a, a fan of painting, check him out. Um, he is, uh, we were living together and there was a guy who lived across the street from us who was like, sort of like the, you know, the, the mayor of the block, you know, he was always outside. Everyone knew him and he was a real wild personality. He was really, he could be the sweetest guy in the world. He could be really well. He sold crack um, and some other things, uh, but he was always very sweet to us. And Daniel one day just called him Dream Mega, um, and it just stuck as a name. And I always said to Daniel, you know, someday I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a project called Dream Mega. Uh, and then I had a thing called Mega Fuckers out here, um, and the Mega kind of worked. Uh, I like, I like, I like this idea that that mega is sort of like this ubiquitous word that's always around like a mega deal or, you know, th- that it's describing something that feels very um, excessive, you know, and, and, and indulgent, like the mega idea. Uh, and then I did a project with Sean Greenlee, uh, just a one-off show uh, from landed and Scott Martin from um, uh, 400 blows big business and Crom and Matt Johnson, who I play in street buddy with. Um, we did a thing called Dose Mega uh, out here um, at um, at Laura Owens's gallery when she had when she was running it. Gavin Brown had a gallery out here called um, Three Five Six Mission, um, and yeah. So Dream Mega just seemed appropriate. Uh, all the other names I came up with, somebody already had it, and uh, the underscore is um, a way of keeping track of file names on old operating systems where you couldn't have a space. Um, you had to always have something there, uh, some symbol filling in, and people just very commonly use uh, underscores in other programming languages. I, right. I, I'm speaking a little bit outside of my expertise here, but Sean, my my musical partner uh, in crime, he he always names files that way. So it got me into the habit of always naming files with it, never having a space always an underscore. Right, that makes sense. Sorry, the and- long-winded answer. Oh, no, you did great. And yeah, it makes sense to name a project, something like that, because it definitely grabs your attention more than like, you know, if I named my band car or something like right. that. No offense to anyone who's done that, who's who's listening. But, you know, something that's like, you know, Mega Man, where it's right, like, right. you know, it, it grabs you and uh, keeps your attention. So that totally makes sense. Are you working on... Anything new lately? Or are you just continuously working on Dream Mega stuff? Um, yeah, right now I'm working on um, a record and new LP um, that we're aiming for November would be released. Um, so that means I have to finish it in like March. Um, and so I'm working on that. It's um, it's a whole right now. It's a whole bunch of really short songs comparatively to like what I normally do. They're like two minutes you know my, my goal is to have it become like a like a hard, old hardcore record like 20 at least 20 songs 
on the LP. Um, they're much more minimal. Um, I'm kind of treating the project almost like a four track project where I'm literally just using four tracks, not even bumping them, but do three tracks live and vocals or three tracks live and some other thing that might provide like a lead or an accompaniment part. Um, and I'm just using a, a couple instruments, like the same instruments for every, every song, which I, I haven't done in the past. I'm usually just kind of following whatever, you know, wild hair is up my ass about, you know, what I want to do in the, that moment. Uh, so this is kind of a little more structured, I think, as a record, as like a, a whole thing. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to, trying to make some art again, but it's been a long time uh, for me since I was making work real seriously like I had in the past. Um, I just, it's been a while enough away and, 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 and a long, like, a, well, not very long actually, but a very thorough re-immersion into making music that it's kind of freed up a little space to me making work again, perhaps. I made a, a video a few years ago and that was the first thing I made for like the art world uh, in a while. Um, and so music has really, has really plugged this hole in my life, I guess. Or, you know, it was something that I, and I went to art school as a kid. Uh, and then the guys, I, people I went to art school with, we just became fans together and stayed in Providence and then had this long time of just making music. None of us really made any art other than like posters basically for shows then came back to making art and then now again back to making music um in a, in a very serious way that um i can't see really stopping anytime soon so, so was the reason that because if it's based on my experience or similar to my experience then like the trajectory is like you're playing in a lot of bands and like getting like really excited about just like the concept of playing in bands with all your friends and whatnot. And then that becomes um, such a clusterfuck after a while, or just like not even like a negative experience, but just something that just like wears on you so much that you gravitate towards something that's like, not that like not music at all, really just to like take a break from it. And then you kind of come back to music as like, yeah, you know, music's cool, but like as a solo artist or somebody who's at least a lot less reliant on scheduling band practices and things of that nature. Is that kind of what the motivation was for you? Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a big part of it for sure. Um, you know, being in a band, as you know, it's just like, and especially if you're like oftentimes kind of like, uh, you know, when, when we were doing landed in earnest in the late nineties and late two thousands, it was very like, we were trying to go as fast as we could. Like there was, there wasn't any like, Hey, let's make another record that sounds like this one. Or let's, 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 let's make this record and then go on tour and play these songs. I mean, that just wasn't part of our thinking. Like maybe we'd play some songs. Maybe we wouldn't, we would just wing it that night, you know? Um, and for me, like going that fast with a bunch of other people inevitably, um, you know, not everyone stays on the same course of what they, what the next thing is they, they feel they want to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was some tensions with that a little bit. Um, I was having a bunch of health problems then like with my back, I had a really bad back at the time um, and drumming a lot. I was working like a desk job at the time, like 40 hour a week in an office and then going and just, you know, going nuts every night and it just kind of ruined my body. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, like you're saying, like this sort of conflict of scheduling or whatever, just this thing where you're, you're, you're trying to keep essentially, a, in my opinion, like a very intimate relationship going with multiple people at once. You know, it's not like it's hard enough to have an intimate relationship with a lover, you know, or something. Uh, but then to have it with like four or five other people, it's, you know, it's intense and, and, yeah. and it can be draining. So, so there was something about, you know, for me, I started making art again just because I could control it so simply. Like if I wanted to, if I wanted to make work today, um, if I wanted to draw or paint or whatever it was I was doing at the time, I just did it. Like, I didn't have to get together with anyone or ask if I didn't want to do anything. If I thought the night before, before bed, like now tomorrow, all I'm going to do is work on this new drawing and then wake up in the morning and be like, yeah, fuck that. Like, I don't, oh, can I curse on this? 
Of course. Okay. Uh, like, you know, I'm not going to. It's encouraged, by do, the way. Okay. I'm not going to do anything today. Like, and no one's there, like, being like, dude, what are you, what are you fucking up? You know, come on. We got to get this, we got to get this thing going. Um, so there was something, you know, in the middle of the night, real late at night, I could just go and do it. And there was something that felt so like liberating and, 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 and it felt like I had so much agency in that process that I just really, I went whole, whole hog into it. And for me, like now at this time of my life, I don't really see a difference between making art and making music to me. Like, I just feel like it's the same, it, it tapped into the exact same creative process for me. Um, and the kind of way that I approach my work you know, sort of a, I don't know how to explain it without sounding pretentious or something, but like just a certain kind of um, freedom of, of like, I'm just going to start something and then I'm just going to see where it goes. I'm not going into this with like, here's the song I'm going to write. Here's the sculpture I'm going to make. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. kind of playing around until something happens. Um, and for me, I don't see a real difference in that in art or in music. Uh, I, I, the big difference in art and music is, is 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 the world that consumes it, right? So the art world is something where the only people who are actually consuming your work, I mean, they can look at your work and they can come to a show, but someone who's actually buying your work is a very small sector of the public, you know, the very, very wealthy segment of the public who yeah. has the kind of disposable income to spend tens of thousands of dollars on artwork, hundreds, you know, Mm-hmm. Just huge amounts of money, and to me, that was something that uh, you know. I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself here, rambling. Sorry, um, it's a little early. Your own uh, but, world, keep it going. This, yeah, you know, just this idea of um, accessibility. You know, if, mm-hmm. if I want someone to live with something I make, it's one thing to like hear a song on the radio, or you know, um, maybe see a movie in the theater, or or read an excerpt from a book. But it's a very different thing to buy the book and read the whole thing. Own the see the movie multiple times, you know, buy the record and really listen to it over and over again until it becomes part of, you know, who you are. I think I've I've had that experience sometimes in just seeing an artwork, but I really need to see it again and again and again. Like it's something, you know, like uh, you know, I have an awesome painting my friend Michael Hayden made there. I have a very different relationship with that painting because it lives in my house than I have with any other artwork that I've ever seen in a gallery. And so I like this idea that for 20 bucks or a trade or 10 bucks or five bucks, if it's a cassette, you can just have what I make. You don't have to be rich. You know, you can just be like, Hey, I'm going to forego going out to dinner tonight. And therefore I can afford this thing in a way that you just can't say, I'm not going to go out to dinner tonight. And then I'm going to go to the gallery and buy, you know, a $9,000 painting. So that's like a, you know, it's a different kind of, 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 of people that are engaged in it. And if you've ever hung around with really, really rich people, um, they're not always the coolest. <laughs> <laughs> not always. No, <laughs> it's an understatement. There's exceptions to the rules, but sure. But, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're, it's very, just like a very, a different kind of space than being someone who plays music and, or, you know, goes to see a show or, whatever you know so yeah i mean it it is an unfortunate class divide with with physical art like you're saying because yeah a a lot of us don't have a grand or more to and i i I, it seems like a grand is even on the cheap side for you know a piece of piece of art or whatever i've never bought art that was more than you know twenty dollars to be honest so like <laughs> right right um and so i so I'm, I'm i'm a little hazy on like how much art actually costs but yeah the class divide of it versus uh you know the accessibility of music both as a consumer of it and somebody who like practices it where i feel like with you know visual art there's more emphasis on you know things like degrees and you know where you've been shown before and things like that whereas with music you can just kind of like jump in and go and then yeah like what you're you're saying like i have pieces of art that you know i i've been able to like look at just because they're like around and so like you know i can just like while i'm doing other things i can just kind of like stop and stare at it for you know a minute here and then you know a minute there later whereas with music since like you know, if you're like me, you're, you're listen, doing the majority of your listening while you're doing dishes, while you're in the shower, while you're driving and whatever. And so you're listening to these albums and they're kind of seeping in through osmosis. 
the more that you listen to them. Whereas like, you know, it'd be very dangerous to do that driving, you know, looking at a piece of art on your phone or something like that. Right, so. right. Yeah. And that, and that music then becomes like, like, an like you can't extract it from your memory. You know, it becomes part of like this memory of your life too. Maybe not even specifically, but you know, things become the sort of the soundtracks of your life life through different periods where you're like, oh yeah, I was listening to that record a whole ton that time. And like, you know, it, 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 you hear that record again later and it kind of brings you back to that time in a way that I think, you know, it's just so cool how music, for me at least, music and memory are so oh, yeah. inextricable. You know? Yeah. I feel like every strong memory that I have, there's a song or an album that's there. Like when I think back to it, it's like, oh, that was when I was listening to this cure album or whatever the hell. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. Um, what art do you make? We didn't, I don't know that you got to that. Like what, what is, what was your medium like, and what, what are you hoping to do more of with that? Um, so I started off like most people in you know, drawing, uh, as a kid and all, I then I went to art school. I was a printmaker at RISD. Um, that's where I met. Like I was in the printmaking department with Sean Greenlee, Matt Brinkman, Brian Chippendale. Mm. We were Damn. all together in the same year. Uh, uh, Sean was a year below us, Musta Brown, a bunch of other people who have like music and, you know, the guys from the Savvy Fob were there, the Black Dice guys, you know, we were all at Rizzi at the exact same time. Um, and then of course the local Providence scene, which was insane. Um, so then I, I was making a lot of, when I came back to making art in my late twenties after landed sort of like was, you know, kind of around, but not very active. Um, I started making drawings and paintings again. Um, and then I was lucky enough to go to this residency um, in Maine called Skowhegan. And I had a real like sort of epiphanous summer there where I threw away all my supplies for making paintings and drawings. And I just started making work like just whatever the fuck I wanted to make. Um, like when I was at Skowhegan, I, you know, one of those big bounce house castles, I, I put that out in, in the middle of a big lake where you could like, you know, where it was just like glowing, like some big thing I was building and survival shelters that I was living in. I know this kind of sounds ridiculous, but you know, I was just sort of like chasing whatever, whatever I was interested in. And I realized um, that medium didn't matter. Like it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, my allegiance to being good at some medium in that, you know, that there was this, there was this thing, like I could make a drawing of, of, of a bounce house castle out in the middle of a lake you know, at night, kind of eerie glowing, or I could just do that thing, you know, that there was that option was, I didn't have to make a representation thing. I could just do the fucking thing. Uh -huh. And to me that never, you know, I, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. You know, I was good at drawing. So people were like, yeah, you know, he's great at drawing. Like he should go to art school or whatever. You know, you just do the thing that you're good at. You know, when you're a kid, if people are psyched, you're, you're psyched. Um, and I just had a natural ability to draw like some people do. Uh, but I just realized, you know, that that, that, that allegiance didn't matter much to me um, suddenly. Uh, and then I just started making whatever I wanted to make. So Soon thereafter, I went to graduate school. That's what brought me to Los Angeles. I came here to USC to get an, an MFA. And it was technically in sculpture, but it, once you got there, there was no major. You just did whatever you wanted. So I made a lot of different kinds of work. Um, right after school, I made a, a puppet show that happened on the freeway uh, out of the back of a pickup truck. So when you were stuck in traffic, you would hear the sign would come out and it would say tune into this radio station. And I had a short, I had a small range um, transmitter, FM transmitter. So I could transmit a signal to all the cars around me. And so when the back of the truck would open up and the puppets would start going, you were hearing the soundtrack in your car while you were watching it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's genius. So we learned to like, you know, lip sync to it. A friend of mine, Peter Fuller in Providence had, sort of casually mentioned this idea to an old friend and he and I, and then I took it um, and sort of ran with it. He came out and helped me build some of it. And then we, then I did the, executed the show, uh, built a lot of fountains. I've done a lot of performances that are site specific that happened in a very, like one particular place. <laughs> and then, um, and all that kind of work really thrilled me. Um, 
And then, you know, I became part of this industry in a way, or, you know, part of the, the business of the art world uh, and started again, kind of coming back to making drawings and paintings because those things were just to be completely frank or uh, easier to sell than, uh, you know, a photograph of an experience or a video of a performance or some sculpture that's like cool to look at, but it's just made of plastic and trash and shit that in 10 years is going to fall apart. You know, you, you don't want to, you know, people have that uh, idea that, you know, you buy a piece of art because it's going to last forever. It's going to like outlast you. It's made of marble or it's made of bronze. You know, it's made of canvas and paint or oil paint on canvas. If you take care of it, it's going to last, you know, very, very long time. And I had no interest in that bullshit. Like, I was like, I wanted to make objects and experiences that were like life, you know, that, that fell apart, that were messy, that, you know, got lost or broken or just disintegrated. Um, and I couldn't really rectify in my own mind um, how to do that and be a part of this art world that was continually seemed to be asking of me can you make something we can sell? <laughs> can you just mm -hmm. make it a little easier on us here? Which I did. And, and, you know, if that worked great, but if it didn't, you know, it wasn't like I had this practice going of, of always doing that same thing. And eventually, you know, once I get a couple hundred of these and we'll get it, you know, we'll sell them all. I'm just not interested in that. You know, I've always, I guess whether I knew it or not, it took a certain moment in time to realize that like, to me about like art making is about freedom. You know, it's about doing what you want, how you want to do it. If the world comes and rewards you with money, that might change how that works, but maybe not. Uh, I think that if you can stay focused, I think that the art world is you know, making art, whether that's music, writing a book, I don't see the difference at all. Fuck, I don't see the difference between being a performance artist or making art and being a pro wrestler. Like, mm -hmm. To me, that is you are a performance artist, straight up. That's what you are as a as a wrestler, and that's where my draw to it really came from. I know I'm speaking about pro wrestling, and and whoever's listening to this doesn't have the the preamble that you and I had prior to recording where we were talking about professional wrestling. But but I see this as 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 true performance art, um, and so to me, it's just like I guess I'm back to this place where I just don't give a shit. I don't which I know sounds maybe ridiculous or I'm putting on a, an act or something, but that same feeling I had when, we were, when, when let's say when landed first started playing music, like we didn't give a fuck because no one gave a fuck. No one gave, cared about Providence. No one gave a shit about, you know, we were just playing music for our friends. It was really lucky if there were 15 people there and they were all in another band that was going to play to you next weekend. So there was just like, you know, there was no expectation like, Oh yeah you know, keep doing this, we're going to be opening up for Metallica or we're going to, you know, right. whatever. It's just like, no, no one's going to ever like this shit. Like this is, this is, we have our own little world and we're just doing what we're doing. And, and I guess that's also, you know, the privilege of the young or something, you know, where you're, you're young and naive and just really invested in what you're doing. And you don't just, you don't just don't give a shit. But if, as you know, as you know, anybody who lives long enough understands like with age, you know, that's, that's a hard thing to hold on to, or I, I found it to be. And, and it feels, again, like right now, like I, I somehow, with music, I've, I've grabbed it again, you know, and that feels fucking great. So. Is that your theory of, because in, in Phoenix, like 10, 15 years ago in particular, there was some like pretty weird shit going on. Um, and maybe part of that has to do with the fact that like Phoenix isn't Los Angeles or New York where obviously weird things are happening, but it's in a much different way. Um, is, is it, was it similar in Providence? Is that your theory as to like why things got so weird, like in the late nineties in Providence with like lightning bolt, Arabon radar, six finger satellite, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there was, you know, it was awesome that there was, there, there happened to be in, in my opinion, you know, um, a real, real cluster of talent of people who were capable of making certain sounds and, and were driven, you know, really hard to do so. But yeah, I think the places that are overlooked, the places that aren't the, I mean, it may be 
even in recent history just before then, whether that's like, you know, Olympia or Chapel Hill or places mm-hmm. where like, you know, these huge scenes have come out of where you're just like, what the fuck? That's like, a, I've never been there. Why would you even stop there? You stopped in Providence to get gas on your way to your show to, in Boston from New York. You know, that's how it, it was. So, yeah, I think that when you have places that are overlooked or places like you're saying, it's different. Phoenix is different than L.A. Because, yeah, with L.A., there's always kind of the chance that one show or one instant might might all of a sudden give you an opportunity because there's a lot of opportunities here and there's a lot of people who are doing it at the the highest levels, let's say, and I don't mean the highest levels as far as quality, but the highest levels, let's say, professional money sure. thing. Like something could happen to you in a way that like it ain't gonna happen in Providence or Phoenix, you know? Right. Like, it would have to you would have to be way it would have to be a way more crazy alignment of stars to have that be the case. So you're operating, you know, you're just there to to do it and have fun and to and to just you know you've you got to find a way to do this that's really for you in a way that is i think that has to be really genuine or, or you're not going to do it in a place where you know a good night maybe 20 people come to see you play right and i'm not saying that's a bad night you know i'm not saying that is like oh only 20 people fuck that I'm, I just went on tour on the East Coast one night. Me and Neil played to like four people. You know? mm-hmm. uh, so in a nightclub that could have fit three hundred. So you know, it's just like, you know, why are you doing this, and 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 in what way are you willing to, to keep doing it? You know, regardless of the attention that's going to be paid to you, or you know, whatever sort of success comes out of it, real world success outside of you know, just knowing that you just got up there and ripped it, like you know. What's better than that? <laughs> right, no, a- a- absolutely. Um, my my favorite place to play in the in the past has been Cedar City, Utah, and it was because when I went there, I don't know that shows go on there, or at least the same people are putting on shows there anymore. I haven't. This is like over a decade ago, but basically, the the venue was like this apartment complex, and everybody in Cedar City, Utah, who was like remotely into that kind of thing lived in this like apartment complex. Like they just like took it over and then everybody would go to the shows. Like there would just be in like somebody's apartment, but just the excitement of that, the, the fact that there was like shows going on, people Mm -hmm. were way more excited to talk to me and listen to what I was doing there. than like, I played the smell in 2012 no offense to the smell. It was a lovely place. People, uh, people weren't enthusiastic. I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a different experience. Yeah. Um, so with all of these different ideas, cause basically as far as me asking you, you know, what kind of art you are looking to make or have made the answer that I got in a nutshell is like, whatever the fuck I want. So (laughs) with me, it's like, if I'm focusing on this particular medium or whatnot, then I have, you know, a blueprint in my head of like, I want to start playing drums more. So I'm going Mm. to start playing drums each morning or whatever. So my question for you, if you have all of these different ideas and things that you want to work on and it's kind of less structured than if you just decided like i'm going to just focus on painting for a year or i'm just going to focus on uh drawing squirrels then how do you organize all of that and like prioritize all of that mm. does that make sense yeah but, yeah, yeah no it's a, it's a tough question to answer um I mean, as far as prioritization or staying on track, I just think that, you know, there's a kind of, I'm just trying to access the day-to-day or, you know, week-to-week feeling of, of what am I drawn to? Um, what What is it that's interesting, you know, interesting to me? What What's grabbing my attention or, or making me, I think, oh, you know, I want to go play music. I want to, I want to draw something. I want to put a bunch of crap together and turn it into a fountain, you know, whatever really is just happening at, at a gut level is I'm trying to trust that if I'm doing these things, um, 
if I'm trying to, if, if, if I'm being driven from a place that doesn't feel as that conscious, you know, that it feels like it is just like a visceral feeling of this is what I want to do. And, and then maybe as the day goes on, I, after I'm making some music, I'm thinking, oh, you know, that reminds me of like the rhythm of an editing in a video. Then maybe I'll go and, and work on some video that I've already have going. I've got a couple of video projects that I'm working on that I'm, I'm not working as hard as I could because I just don't want to. And I think that to me, I mean, I had a, a, a few great teachers in my life say this kind of the same thing to me, which is if you're following this, this sort of genuine drive that you have to just really indulge in what you're interested in. And if it moves in a bunch of different ways, you just have to trust that. That because it's all coming from this place in you that feels like unfiltered or unbiased or as, as, least, as least influenced as you could possibly make it, that you're trusting that all of those little pieces are going to, you know, are going to put themselves together. Like it's going to be the little Lego house that, that builds itself. As long as you have the pieces there, and you're constantly open to looking at all the pieces and 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 trying to see them like as fresh as you can see them day to day. You know, I mean, it's, there's nothing like make it working on a song and you're like you're hammering it for three or four hours, and then like you turn it off and you still think it's on because it's just like in you. You know, so how do you come back the next day and try to be like, hmm, I'm going to get a fresh take on that? Like maybe it maybe it doesn't need this one tone that I was trying to force into it but how do you get to that place where you can day-to-day sort of remove yourself and become like have this have this new take on it and i think that for me it's about like is again following these whatever it is that's interesting is interesting to you knowing that it's going to somehow take shape and i think that like is the trick to that or one of the main ways to do that is to just be really patient is to just not have a schedule that's thinking like, like a new year's resolution, you know, that's going to be by the end of this year, I've done this and this and this, you know, which for some people, that's how it goes. And I, I know many successful people, people who make great stuff who have rigid schedules and they, they really plan it out. But for me, I've always been drawn to this sort of bric-a-brac way of thinking of just like, if I know how to do do a little bit of plumbing and I know how to build a wall or a house and I know how to play music, well, maybe at some point I'm going to build some sculpture that's like a wild fountain that as it moves, the water moves through parts, it's going to activate sounds that are triggered through synthesizers. I mean, this is just a dumb example. I just made up off the top of my head. Um, but if that makes sense that like, you know, the videos that I just started making and has become like the, the focus of, of my art practice right now has to be, has come out of music, you know, come out of me playing music again and thinking about, you know, music has a time, it, it, you know, you can't, it's not like a painting where you can just look at the painting in one second and see the whole painting and walk away if you want, or you can spend an hour with it. But like, if you're going to listen to a record, it takes you as long as the record is to listen to it, to experience the thing. It's, it's happening in time in the same way video is. So I started thinking about like the pacing of editing, what, what works well in a film, right? What makes a film great? And to me, I started to realize, well, to me, it's just the editing. Like you could edit you know, a bunch of dogs taking a shit and make it you know, Academy Award winning film, in my opinion, if you did, if, if the editing and the music was right, like you can make anything look amazing. Or, and I encourage or, or, you to or, do or, that, by the way, for, for a video. <laughs> I, I think that's, I think that's, that would be an awesome dream mega video. And the Academy Award goes to. <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm understanding um, you correctly, I think it's similar to what, uh, Neil Burke was was talking about in in the recent episode. Uh, Neil, he referenced a few minutes ago. What's up, Neil? If you're if you're listening to this, um, but talked about how he has a lot of instrumental music pieces with uh, with Sinking Body, and then also comes up with a lot of weird visuals um, and song topics and titles and what have you. And then we'll kind of see what connects to what. 
and like what feels right after that. And I've created things similarly where I've written small prose pieces or poems or whatever, and then decided like, oh, I'm going to connect this and this because it feels right. And then I also have these different instrumental music pieces that I work on without considering how they're directly connecting to this other thing. But then I'll have like a bunch of shit and then be like, hmm, this, I'm going to put this and this together. And yeah, that, that feels right. And then kind of go from there, like kind of putting together a puzzle is that, and that's my understanding of like what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's like, you know, everyone can access this kind of feeling where or like, like whenever there's some weird serendipitous shit happens in your life where you're like, you know, you're looking at something, you're at the supermarket and you're looking at something right when this song comes on the, the overhead, you know, into the sound system of the supermarket. And it makes this crazy moment where you're like, and I can't think of a specific example, but you know what I mean? Or something that somehow it all connects and you're like, mm-hmm. there's something that's way more magical to, to like about that in my, in my personal experience than like, watching the job well done of someone who's like you know created this wild world but it actually isn't that wild it feels like someone sat down in a room with a piece of paper and they're like okay here's the here's the star of the story and here's how we're going to develop this role you know i just watched i guess as an example like regular television that that i'm always just like someone made this like this feels like you know a robot just made this, like it, or a, a committee made this thing. And I think that the reward of of yeah, this moment where just shit comes together. You made something last year. You wrote this new thing today. You wrote this. You found this amazing article in the newspaper from forty years ago, and somehow in one weird instant, you're like, oh shit, these all go together. Like. The magic, I think, in the kind of relationships that work can have to one another in those situations, I find from my own experience, it's far more interesting than me like planning, like being like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to make 10 paintings and they're all going to be using these four colors and they're all going to have rectangles in it or they're all going to be paintings of people at the beach or I'm not, I'm not dissing on people who do that in any way. Some of my favorite artists are artists who are very planning. Uh, they kind of do the same thing. They've been doing basically the same, making the same artwork for 50 years. Like, uh, but that's just not my, my approach. So I just think that there can be something that's so much more exciting about like this moment of discovery. And then the trick is though, especially in fine art, but I'm sure with writing as well, is like, how do you then keep that inner music how do you keep that energy of the discovery alive when you when you transport it to the viewer? You know, when you if they're not there, right? And this is when that music really came back for me is that as an artist, like I make a lot of work that you know is a bunch of found objects that I'm putting together, and maybe they're just held together with some tape. So as the viewer looks at it and they think, "Oh man, this is like a, kind of delicate. This guy didn't really take much time." I could have done it. It's not like he's some trained sculptor. He's just putting a bunch of shit together, right? And that hopefully that energy can remain when it's taken from my studio and put on a plinth in a gallery, right? Where the person still has that feeling of like, oh, he just made this quick. Like it was just, even if it took me 10 years to make the piece, I want it to look like, you know, you just had a couple beers in in your garage on a Friday night. You were like, put this stuff together. Like, voila. Look at that. You know, like that's the feeling I want. But with music, you can do it every night because you're the person there in front of you making this music. So like when something magical happens or like some weird thing happens, you drop something or you just make a a noise happens that you weren't expecting. Everyone feels that and kind of knows it. You know what I mean? Because it's, Mm -hmm. we're all in real time together. It would be the equivalent of, the entire audience from the gallery coming to my studio and watching me make the work and being there for that moment where I'm just like, here's some tape, I'll tape this together with this, and then I'll put this here. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, like we watched it happen. We were there for the most exciting moment, which was the making of it, which was that discovery. And for me, like, I was like, holy shit, music's that. Like, even if the audience, I mean, I hope the audience knows, but if not, I'm doing it right there. Like I'm taking some chance by saying like this little part that I didn't expect to hear. It sounds cool. 
we're going to follow that for the rest of the set. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Like people are just kind of, it's, it's a more interactive sort of experience that like kind of draws you in in a different way than if you, you know, go see the Rolling Stones and then they play satisfaction note for note or whatever. Right, 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 right. Which is cool, but like, sure. you know, it's a, it's a job well done and, and I'll, and I'm saying job well done, not necessarily as a compliment, right? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Like, I'm, um, you know, uh, that we're, we're surrounded by jobs well done all the time. And for me, like to have something that feels like electric, like it's going to fall apart. It's going to not do what it should do. Maybe it's not going to do it right, right in front of me right now. Like this mm-hmm. person is going to fuck up right in front of me. <laughs> you know, that There's something kind of thrilling about that. Because we live in a time, especially it feels like where the you know everyone wants to present a really professional result, a really a, a careful package that is like you know perfect. They they they, they they want they want the glory of people coming up to them and being like, "Wow, this is just a a flawless masterpiece." Like you're a, like yeah. they want that they want that ego feed. Absolutely, and that that that's like a you know I guess and has always been sort of the measure of quality for the last you know, 500 some years more of like the master right? We're, we're, we're the program to think that, that the greatest thing is the thing that is like a, a person who is a master of this craft and, and uh, is a brilliant thinker, you know, has spent a lifetime working this thing. And now we have this piece mm-hmm. and that kind of epic sort of triumphant, um, you know, the victory of the champion, like, fuck that shit. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 no, totally. So, um, and so to me, like, it just doesn't seem exciting to me at all. Again, it just feels like somebody who's, you know, who's just been doing something great the whole night. And the, and I'm not dissing that. You know, I like watching a pro athlete every once in a while. Like, I enjoy watching someone who's just amazing at what they do, do what they do. But, um, but it's not as exciting to me as the potential for failure. Yeah. Or and the it, potential it, for the, some new thing that's going to happen that you're never going to hear again, never going to happen again. Right. You're never going to be able to reproduce it no matter what, because of the gear you're using or the situation that you're in. The singular experience. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, if you're, if you're striving for like that level of, of greatness of, you know, being the Michael Jordan of your craft. I can't think of a less cliche analogy that not everyone's used, but then you are kind of taking away from what you can accomplish as just like a heartfelt artist. If you're just like focusing too much on, on the craft of it, if, if I'm kind of understanding what you're saying correctly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and again, you know, and and I, and I think this is, you know, as someone who has like gone to art school, fuck, I went twice, you know, I went to undergrad and grad school. It's not like I'm not a trained person. Right. So one yeah. could maybe argue that there's almost like a, there's like, you know, I'm sort of, you know, playing or, or I'm sort of like turning my back. Like it's just as much of a move to sort of remain naive or try to, try to sort of keep that beginner's way of being. You know, it's, it's as much as a move as just being super calculated and being like, I'm going to get great at this. I'm going to do the best version of this thing. But I, I, I and I would agree with that argument if someone wanted to take it there. But I think that to me, it's just the result is more exciting. The experience is more exciting. It is a move that I've made because it's not like I never learned anything or never. There were times in my life where I was like, yo, shit, like I would be the best damn drawer I could be. Like I'm going to be the best person in class. I'm going to be the, you know, that kind of striving for the best, um, which I think is hard to not be a part of growing up in a Western culture, you know. Um, but but for me, that that also even speaks to a bigger thing, like a bigger idea beyond art making, which is, you know, the people who are like that, they're generally the people that like ruin the world. <laughs> you know, it's right. not like the it's not like the stoner sitting at home listening to fucking the Grateful Dead is going to ruin this place. It's the person who's like, I want, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to be the best at this. I'm going to, you know, that there's that kind of that mentality of of like being the best that I think is 
is part of like a poison in our culture. It's it's the person who really takes capitalism to heart, who really like goes out and like fucks things up in a bad way. Yeah. Right. Their their ambition, like ambition's ambition, right? I mean, it's like you can you can you can direct it in lots of different ways, but it's the ambitious that we have to blame for right as all the great a lot of the great things we have to praise them for but a lot of the horrible things were you know were were done by very ambitious people so i lost my train of thought oh uh so what then or how much of what you do is improvised then when you do it live because you were bringing up some like little changes here and there but i'm assuming you have some sort of like rough set list yeah yeah so live um i'll bring in some i i use a sampler um, that has just a couple beats on it. And then everything else is gear that I'm making the sounds with um, synthesizers. Um, and I, I use about four looping pedals. So I'm manually making loops while I'm playing. So I have these general ideas. Yeah. Like I'm going to play this song, but, but you know, the song as I recorded, it has 25 tracks and I only want to do three things at once. So I'm going to make a very, I'm going to make an interpretation, basically. I'm going to cover my own songs, but I'm going to cover them in a way that you know, maybe if you knew the record or the song really well, you'd recognize it, but maybe you wouldn't either. Sometimes it can sometimes it can be kind of, you know, depending on the night, um, pretty close to the song, even if it's um, structurally very different. But let's say the lyrics would be the same or the tempo is the same, the beat's the same. And then sometimes it can go very far away. Again, just leaving that open to the night, to the way the room sounds. You know, if all of a sudden I start playing and it is super duper bassy and I start doing something that's super bassy and it sounds cool, I might say, okay, I'm going to follow this for as long as I'm willing to go. And that might be five or six minutes of me just going off, chasing that bass sound and and making all the other synthesizers now in response to this new thing that mm-hmm. happened kind of by accident because of the shape of the room or how many people are in it or not in it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I usually have, a, I have, a, always have a timer. Uh, sometimes I'll forget to turn it on. Um, and then I'll just know that I have to stop in 30 minutes or 40 minutes or 20 minutes. Um, and sometimes I'll finish, I'll squeeze in all the little things that I've written down. And sometimes I won't. Um, the set list would say maybe something like just the instrument. I would just have like the first maybe five songs, six songs would just be the name of one of the synthesizers. And that would be my cue to just bring that synthesizer in. So start making like this last tour was all like I would start just playing a line on the keyboard, like a really bassy sort of repetitive line that's kind of a little like, like a little shaky and not mm-hmm. very like super catchy in some rhythmic way and then loop that and then bring in a flute and then bring in another and then just keep building on that and that would go maybe 10 or 15 minutes inevitably you know things repeat and and like you know i'll settle into like oh that sounded cool like me would be able to say like oh i could hear it develop through the tour of like you know each night you were kind of taking the best of the last night and bringing it with you and then trying something else so for me you know, a set is something that is there to be, a set list is there to be like fall, to fall back on. Like it's there as almost, for me, I treat it like a crutch. If I need it, it's there. If all of a sudden, like I've just gone down some hole that sounds like absolute garbage and I need to reel this back in because I'm just like, fuck, I, I don't know how this happened, but it sounds like shit. Mm-hmm. Then I can look down at the set list and be like, okay, I'll, I'll jump in right here. And then I'll jump into the set list somewhere. But there are times where, like, I mean, there were multiple times on the tour of Neil that I, I didn't make a set list at all. I just got up and, you know, I had some ideas in my head of songs that I'll bring in, but really just kind of trying to chase, chase the night, you know, chase the, chase the thing that's happening. And I mean mm-hmm. that chasing it, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but, you know, you're. It makes sense. You're just. Yeah, I mean, it's just like like, Pauline Oliveros' deep listening, you know, of just like you're really intently listening to this thing to the point where it's kind of telling you what you're going to do next. And I know that maybe sounds a little hippy-dippy, but I I definitely feel that and respond to it. And I try to create situations in which I'm 
you know, like any improv- improviser does, you're you're more listening than you are playing. You know? Yeah, being it's a, a musical free range. Being a good player. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I was gonna say this. This uh, also can be tied back into wrestling because of I, I'm thinking specifically of wrestlers that go out and do promos that are a little bit more based in improvisation. Uh, MJF is a good example of this, where if you do something and then it's like not working and you can tell that it's not working, then you kind of have to switch gears in real time. And there's obvious ways with wrestling to figure out whether something is working as far as like audience reaction or lack thereof or whatnot with you. I would assume that like you can kind of feel a room and then that will play some part based on how people are reacting. But then again, like, people probably aren't going to be spending the time, whether they like it or not, they're probably not going to be spending the time going like, fuck yeah, like out loud at what you're doing, nor are they going to be saying, fuck you and like throwing things at you. I don't know if that's happened. Maybe it's happened to you, but how does that factor in then? Like the audience reaction? Um, I think the audience reaction, uh, maybe the biggest factor is how it, I will play physically. Like I, if, if the audience is, if I feel like they need a little extra help in, in, in me grabbing their attention, like I will, you know, come from behind the keyboard, I'll walk right into the crowd, I'll have the mic, I'll be singing or doing something where I'm looking someone right in the eye, I'm on the ground in front of them, flipping the fuck out, like, there will be times where I'll pull in my younger life and landed uh, as far as like a, like a performative, kind of not extremism, but like a, a very physical performance because I'm, when I'm playing, I'm moving between like, you know, my head's kind of down, I'm working my synthesizers. And then there's times where I'm up and I have the mic and I'm full on singing, you know, going nuts. That mm-hmm. doesn't sound anything like the, not, not much like the recordings of me. Um, but I think that like, for me, my goal is always, you know, is to have it be, if like, when I start playing, I can hear everyone talking and then within like 10, 15 minutes, if there there are moments when I stop and it's quiet, that's what I'm always, you know, I think everyone's kind of after that because there's moments with what I do that if I can get the room to be silent, the silence when I stop, like kind of quickly, those those become super dramatic, where it's very very noisy, and then you know right. nothing, and then it comes back on again. That noise and that sort of, I think that tension between the play of of like my extreme sort of volume or density of sound, and then the audience being completely silent and super attentive. To me, that's the sort of I guess it's not much of a give and take. Maybe it's only a take on my part, but like that feeling is, is kind of what I'm always after. And if there are people who are excited and I've had that recently, actually um, I had a wild show in, in Oregon uh, in um, what's, it's the town called. I'm flipping my mind right now. My son's in there. There's the university of Southern Oregon's there. Um, I'll, I'll remember. Sorry, but I played this place that was, not for me um Mm -hmm. like i arrived there and it was it was kind of like a landed show in like 97 where you end up at like some weird bar in massachusetts where you walk in and like everyone's just watching friends on a big screen tv and you're like they booked a long band for tonight (laughs) you know like Mm -hmm. this is not gonna be cool and i've had a few of those on this last the west coast tour and the east coast tour they did the West Coast tour, I had a few of those that were really special and, and wild and, you know, people yelling at me, people yelling at the bar owner, people leaving, tons of people leaving. And then the people who were staying were like going apeshit nuts, you know, and they were super into it. They were like, you know, that was, that was crazy what you just did in this, in this bar kind of feeling. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of skirting the answer to your question, but I guess to me, the interaction with the audience is, yeah, that's just it. I mean, I don't know of a, even yeah. if no one's paying, go on. Sorry. I, I was going to say, basically, like if you can see or hear the assholes and you all know who you are, those of you who talk during sets at shows, but if you can still hear, see or hear the assholes going about their conversation while you're playing, then maybe it's like, okay, it's time to switch 
gears over here so that they'll either stop and pay attention or they'll leave so that you know yeah yeah they're not disturbing yeah. things at least or, or they'll just become part of it or that you know mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is a bar right i have decided i'm playing in a bar you're allowed to talk at the bar there's no rule at the door that says like when when the band's playing shut the fuck up or go outside if you want to you know so there's like I feel like we're all playing the roles that we're playing. And, and I, I was envisioning more like a specifically a venue. Like, I guess, I guess if people want to go to a bar to talk, that's fine. But I'm talking in my, in my mind, I was picturing just like a specifically, a, yeah. okay. like an all ages yeah, venue. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I definitely like to make, you know, I like to bring people in if they want, if they want to be a part of the performance, I'm happy to let them be part of the performance. <laughs> so, right. um, so I'm definitely like, I will confront them and that, and that, that just comes from, I mean, definitely that was, uh, you know, a big part of Providence music back in the day was a very intense physical stage show that was involving the people in the audience and, and you know, everyone was playing on the floor. So there was no stage, there was no, you know, everything just kind of bled together. And mm -hmm. I definitely still like that. And I like to do it at a casual, in a casual way, like the way we would do it back then. It wasn't like, you weren't doing it as an act. It wasn't like some showy glam rock move where you were going to like call somebody out, but you were doing it in a way that was also a show. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that can happen. Of course, it's always a show. If you're the performer, everything you're doing is the show, right? But there, I think there's ways of doing it with like a sense of humor and a kind of engagement and a certain kind of playfulness that's like, that's like trying to bring the person in. Like, I'm not trying to be like an asshole to you, even though you're kind of being an asshole to this room right now by, you know, chatting over top of this thing. But like, I'm going to try to engage with you in a way that's like, it's cool, man. Like you can still be part of the party. <laughs> you know? right. like, um, and that I think that that, um, like, I don't, I think that being generous to it as a performer is cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, uh, I mean, I do appreciate the asshole on occasion. Like he's just like, you know, that person who's like, we're stopping the show. Like, we're, we're done. We're not playing anymore because this one guy, you know, like, but I also am just like, whatever, man, just fucking. I, th I think we can learn things in life from your example as, as a life performer, because if there are those, you know, situations or feelings in life and it's like, well, fuck it. You're part of this too. Now, whatever you're, right, you're right. just going to add to the experience. <laughs> so I got, I, I got a lot of, a lot of deep shit out of what you just said. So yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> um, so I asked you to give me a book and or a film and or a song that were particularly inspiring to you as an artist. Did you do so? I did. Yeah. Um, you know, of course there's a million, so it's hard to say like, I, by no means am I saying this, these are the ones, you know, but mm -hmm. these like stand out as, as real uh, important ones. I'd say um, uh, for a book, um, Shunraya Suzuki's uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is a book of his recorded talkings. Um, he's a Zen, was a Zen Buddhist who, this book came into my possession in, when I was at, in art school and it really kind of blew my mind. I've read it many times. Um, there's a quote really early on in the book that, um, I'm going to paraphrase. I think I'll get it exactly right. But he says something like, in the beginning, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. And in the expert's mind, there are very few. And I always bring that with me again. You can, you know, once you, once you live a certain amount of time and do certain amount of things, you're never going to be the beginner. But if you can keep that mindset of, of like approaching everything as a beginner, like there's, I might learn something amazing today. My entire idea of how this thing is might shift. But I think if you're doing that, you're keeping your mind nimble and you're like always receptive to what could be versus what you know you can do, I guess. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's a it's a book that I, this first chapter, I often assign to my students. Um, it's a really important one. Uh, movies, so many. And I was trying to think of like, how what can I pick that would be the one, like ones that everyone picks? Um, I really love the movie and, and, and I think it's one of the best movies ever about making stuff is Adaptation. Oh. Um, Spike Jones directed, but Char Charlie Kaufman wrote it. Some of my Spike favorites. 
yeah, it's one of my all-time favorites. And as far as like a movie about making things, like that's all that that's what that movie is. It's about being an artist, in my opinion. Like watching that is like a guidebook to being an artist. Mm-hmm. And it's just and I think Charlie Kaufman's a great writer and I think he's not the best director. So I think his best movies have been like when someone's fun, like Spike Jones, like a guy making right. videos and shit, takes this this movie and, and Nicolas Cage is Nicolas Cage. He's so good. Uh, yeah. I just think it's a great instruction on about making things. Um, and a song. I just, want, I just wanted to say real quick about adaptation. Yeah. Like I always like really yeah. loved that. Like he co-wrote it with his fictional brother and that, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that they both won an Academy award. I, I love that a non-existent person won an Oscar because of that movie. That's one of my favorite right. things. Yeah. 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 And I love that, you know, it's just like his, his, his brother, you know, it's like, the exact opposite it's like everything he hates you know right. by the end you're like was he even the blood was he even exist you know it's just such a great yeah it's such a great film and I, I really love the part where it's like at the end of it when he's trying to when Nicolas Cage's character is trying to like uh you know trying to rectify or try to like patch up this this love he has for this woman who you know he never had the balls to pull the trigger so she kind of let you know went on with her life and he says something like or no maybe it's been their no, 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 no. Sorry, it's when the when he and his brother are when the brother is dying out in the swamp at the end. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and he says something like, "You don't get to choose. You know, you choose what to love. You know, like that. That like, and it doesn't matter if it loves you back." And I thought that was like such an amazing idea about making. It's beautiful. Art. It like, yeah, you know, like you don't. It doesn't matter what success you have, or it doesn't matter. You know, you're just doing what you love to do, and that you're allowed to love anything without it returning itself. You know, without right. it returning the love to you, which I think is just such a poignant thing. Um, and I'd say Harry Riley's uh, "In See the Record," which is just one long song um, that blew my mind. Still does every time I listen to it. All of the different versions of it are so amazing and just this idea of a very basic structure for a whole bunch of players. And then inside of that structure, each player is making their own decisions about how long they play this thing and they change, you know, that it gave, it's almost like this, um, this blueprint for improvisation that um, he wrote in such an amazingly weird way, as far as like classical music, that wasn't like what classical music sounded like in the West at the time. And so I think, um, yeah, that song is really important to me. Fantastic. Well, is there anything else you want to say before uh, I hit stop recording? No, I mean, I think I was really rambly and I don't know if many of it made any sense, but, um, but yeah, I think I, I, I enjoy talking to you. I'm glad you like adaptation so much. It's a, it's a movie that I often find people are always like, really, you like that movie? You love that movie? It's very divisive. Yeah. 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 I mean, and then, I mean, Chris Cooper though, is like, come on, that guy as an actor is, is just the great he, he was he was fantastic in that Muppets movie that came out like ten years ago. He was the he was the main villain in it, and he was he was outstanding. Oh, oh, I didn't. I'll have to check it out. He's such a great actor, and that I mean, he is so good in adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tour de Force. But I I, I, th- I I think I think a lot about like when I'm just over something one day. Like I'll just like wake up and I'll decide that I'm over something. I think of yeah. fuck him fish. saying. Then one day, I just decide <laughs> fuck fish. <laughs> I think about that all the time too. And I feel like that's another great guiding principle of like making stuff. It's like, you can be like this person who gets so into this thing where you're like the expert on these particular saltwater fish and this part. And then all of a sudden one day you're like, yeah, I'm done with that. Yeah. And that like you, you have the freedom to do that as a person. And I think Mm -hmm. most people don't remember that. And you have that freedom as an artist. And I think that that's like, to me, that's the most important thing about being an artist is that you have this freedom to be like one day just be like, fuck it. I'm going to do something different, which is like you don't really get that as a parent or a worker. You know what I mean? You get just get to show, show up at work one day. You know what? I'm done being this teacher. I'm going to I'm going to mow the lawns now or something. You know what I mean? People be like, no, we have a guy who does that job. Or, <laughs> you know, like you, you just can't do that in your life, but you can do that in, in any creative practice you have. You might as well take advantage of that since you, exactly, since you have the freedom exactly. to do that with, right, uh, and like right. not be a horrible person, like with those other things that you described. Right. Right. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Good time.